Let's talk finance. Wouldn't it be convenient to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one spot? Yahoo Finance does just that. It consolidates your portfolio views and offers expert analysis, making it easier to manage your investments. Let's not beat around the bush. You want to grow your portfolio, fight inflation, pay off debts, and achieve financial freedom. Yahoo Finance provides the news, data, and tools to make that happen. You may think you've covered all the bases, savings, researching, and investing smartly. But to truly excel, you need Yahoo Finance in your corner. A holistic perspective is crucial for success, and Yahoo Finance ensures you have it. With a massive community of over 90 million users monthly, Yahoo Finance is here to guide you on your path to financial success. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. In my early days, I faced a pivotal moment in my career. Instead of following the herd into traditional finance, I charted my own course. Despite skepticism, I founded my investment firm driven by a belief in economic truth and fiscal responsibility. Through perseverance, I established myself as a leading voice in finance, proving that sometimes blazing your own path is the best way to succeed. To get what you want, sometimes you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. That's what Harry's did. Seeing people tricked by expensive razors, Harry's took a stand. Instead of pricey options, they offer high-quality razors at a fraction of the cost. That's why when it comes to grooming my face, I use Harry's. Harry's understands the value of quality without breaking the bank. Their razors provide a smooth shave every time, and their shaving gel leaves my skin feeling refreshed and moisturized. So don't settle for the status quo. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com gold. That's harrys.com gold for a $3 trial set. The Peter Schiff Show. U.S. stocks continue their correction by moving higher yet again today. Remember, when you have a bull market, the corrections are down because you're correcting the upward trend by moving backwards. Well, in a bear market, it's the opposite. You correct a downward trend by retracing upwards. And that's what we're doing now. I think this is the first rally in this bear market. So this rally is, in fact, a correction. And I think the U.S. stock market is off to its best annual start in about a decade. Certainly the Nasdaq, I think, is up uh, not quite 5%, maybe 4.7% on the year. Of course, what got the correction going was the complete 180 by Powell in that uh, roundtable discussion where he basically reversed uh, everything he was saying and became the the super dove when it comes to rate hikes. And so the market is now pricing out uh, many rate hikes that had probably uh, priced in. And that was the catalyst to really get the market going. Of course, what hasn't been priced in yet are the rate cuts or the end of the quantitative tightening program and the relaunching of quantitative easing. All that is coming. The markets just aren't there yet. They just can't see beyond where we are now. They're looking at this mountain and they don't see the valley on the other side. But again, it's not that the rate hikes in the future were going to cause the recession. The rate hikes from the past have already guaranteed a recession, even though interest rates, you know, in 
you know, absolute terms and relative to where they've been historically are still very low. They're not very low considering the enormity of the debt that we now have that we didn't have historically. So when you have, you know, this mountain of debt, a historically large amount of debt, you need a historically low rate. And even though the rates we have now are still low, they're not as low as they used to be and they're not as low as they need to be. The uh, currency markets, of course, are now starting to figure this out. Uh, Again, I don't think they're thinking as as far ahead as they should, but they are pricing out some of the rate hikes that have been priced in. So as the U.S. stock market goes up, the U.S. dollar is going down. It was down again today. Dollar index weak across the board. In fact, if you look at the Bloomberg dollar index, which is a broader basket uh, than the dollar index that is dominated by the euro, This index is also off to its weakest start in the history of the index. Now, I'm not really sure how long Bloomberg has had the Bloomberg dollar index. I'm sure it's been a while, probably at least 10 years, if not quite a bit longer than that. So it's not a coincidence that you have the stock market going up and you have the dollar going down because it's all a function of interest rates. It was the threat of higher interest rates that were hurting the stock market, but that same threat Uh, was helping uh, the U.S. dollar. And so now those trades are being reversed. Gold up again today, up about eight bucks, I think 12.93, creeping higher. Gold stocks are being dragged higher. They're not leading gold higher. Gold is dragging gold stocks higher. In fact, gold closed right about the highs of the day, yet gold stocks didn't even make new highs from this morning. Uh, When gold was only up a couple of bucks, uh, the gold stocks made their highs in the first maybe half hour of trading. And even though gold ended up going quite a bit higher during the day, uh, the gold stocks uh, were just steady. People are, again, not really connecting the dots and reluctant to buy into gold stocks. You know, gold had a nice day, too, because earlier this morning, gold was down about seven or eight bucks. So it had a nice positive reversal. It was low in the morning before the U.S. stock market opened, and then it rallied throughout the day to close on the highs. You know, we're at about a three-month low now in the dollar index, and technically, it looks very, very weak. Also, oil prices responding to dollar weakness, as I said they would. Oil price is up about $2.5 today. Crude oil back above $52 a barrel. And as I was saying, when the market was going down, that was more a function of the dollar and the anticipation of a stronger dollar and more rate hikes uh, than what was going on uh, with supply and demand in the U.S. economy or even uh, OPEC or Saudi Arabia. Although I think the Saudis did have some supportive comments today about oil prices and kind of targeting $80 oil where I do think we will be before the end of the year. I think we're going a lot higher now that the dollar is going lower. In fact, we're back in a bull market in oil because oil got down to just over $42 a barrel. We now have a $10 a barrel move. We're now up more than 20% uh, from the lows. So now we're in a new bull market in oil. And I think that bull market is going to continue to go. In fact, I think the oil price is going to decouple from the U.S. stock market. Right now, they're all trading together. All these assets are going up and down at the same time. But I think the weak dollar is a lot better for oil than it is for the overall stock market. In fact, as I've said many times, I don't think the Fed simply ending its hiking cycle is enough for the market. And certainly, if it's going to continue with quantitative tighten, that's going to continue to drain liquidity 
out of the market. What the Fed is going to have to do, if it really wants to stop the market from falling, it's going to have to go back to zero and go back to quantitative easing. But uh, right now, the market's got a couple of other positives that it is kind of betting on. And in a buy the rumor, sell the fact fashion, I think once those positive news stories actually come to fruition, the market will have very little uh, to hang its hat on. And in fact, too, we got the uh, the minutes from the December FOMC meeting. And remember, that was the, the, the hike that was supposed to be dovish and was not dovish enough. And the markets really tanked after we got that last quarter point hike. And we got uh, the remarks at the press conference where Powell was not nearly as dovish as the markets had hoped. I mean, he got that way pretty quickly after he you know saw the carnage. But when that hike came out, the markets didn't think it was as dovish as they had expected. But now that we read the minutes, it appears that the Fed was actually more dovish back then than they let on in their official statement or the press conference. Because if you read through those minutes, you know that is more like what the markets might have originally been expecting. Although since I think Powell has already gone further than that, based on his last comments, those dovish remarks didn't you know, help the market because they had already factored them in. But it shows you where the Fed was. And the Fed was already concerned about the markets and some negative things happening to the point that it was a little worried. There were, you know, there were a couple of members that didn't want to hike rates in December, but the majority view uh, was to continue to hike. And I'm sure in the next meeting, the, the guys that were in the minority that said we shouldn't hike will probably be saying we told you so. And they're probably going to gain the upper hand in future FOMC meetings. But what it's really going to take to uh, move the markets more on the Fed is going to be uh, the Fed actually cutting rates or indicating that it's more likely to cut rates or you know tapering. In fact, it, in that, those minutes, it did suggest a tapering of the balance sheet unwind. That was the kind of the first time it showed that even though they were talking publicly about autopilot, those meaning minutes suggested that they would adjust the, the size of their um, of their balance sheet shrinking to a smaller amount per month as maybe they got closer to their goal and if the decline in the balance sheet was having some kind of adverse effect that they could certainly taper back the uh, the amount of, of quantitative tightening they were doing. But of course, none of that's actually going to happen because they're going to go back to quantitative easing. And of course, the, uh, the Fed is still indicating that they don't have enough inflation uh, that inflation is still below 2%. Inflation is going to blow through 2%. It actually already has, so this is a bunch of nonsense. But one of the reasons that the inflationary pressures abated briefly was because you had a big sell-off in oil prices because people were concerned the Fed was going to keep on hiking and that the dollar was going to keep on strengthening. Now that that concern is no longer in the market, oil prices are moving back up. Other commodity prices are going to move up as well, and that's going to put the upward pressure back on commodity prices and on inflation. But ultimately, what's going to happen is as inflation picks up, other economic data is going to continue to weaken. In fact, rising prices will will act as a drag on the economy because it will limit uh, consumer spending, which is a big chunk of the economy because higher prices mean you can't buy as much stuff. 
And that is when the dollar really starts to get killed because as inflation picks up and the Fed is easing and not tightening, that is very negative for the dollar. It's also going to end up being negative for the economy. The Fed is going to rationalize the increase in prices as being transitory. And the Fed is actually going to believe that if unemployment is rising at the same time that inflation is rising, the Fed is going to believe that, well, based on their Phyllis curve analysis, that the pickup in unemployment is going to act as a limiting factor in inflation. And so they don't have to worry about fighting inflation. They just have to worry about fighting the unemployment because the rising unemployment is going to uh, you know, put a lid on inflation and they're wrong. Because as they try to stimulate the economy by printing more money, right, lowering interest rates, it's actually going to push the dollar down and it's going to push inflation higher. And as the budget deficits get bigger and bigger and the Fed has to monetize them because the government tries to stimulate the economy by expanding government and print and borrowing more money, which the Fed is going to have to monetize, that is going to cause inflation to be even greater because it's going to put even more downward pressure on the dollar. And then you're going to get the stagflation environment, which is ultimately going to turn into an inflationary depression. But I want to get back to uh, the, the news items that are likely to come out or that the market is kind of hanging its hat on because there are two supposed positives that investors have to look forward to. One, of course, is the the end of the trade war and in fact a good reason for the rally we've had over the last several days has been some positive uh sentiment when it comes to a resolution of the trade dispute with china uh, some of that came from tweets that were coming out from president trump himself where he's tweeting about how well the negotiations are going and how he is uh, optimistic about a great agreement being reached anytime soon. And of course, people are buying into the market in anticipation of this agreement because it is widely believed that one of the problems that the stock market has had in the past and one of the reasons for the bear market or the weakness was the uncertainty surrounding the trade war and the tariffs and the dampening effect that may have not only on the global economy, but also on the U.S. economy. But people realize that, well, this is only temporary because as soon as we get an agreement and we have a new trade deal and maybe the tariffs go away and the uncertainty goes away, this is going to be a positive for the market. Right? So when people hear that, oh, we may have a deal they run out and buy stocks because they want to own stocks because a deal is going to be good for stocks. But remember, you buy the rumor and you sell the fact. And there's been a rumor of a deal for a long time. And I believe when a deal is finally announced, well, that's going to be the time to sell out because now another positive will have been removed from the market. And of course, any deal is going to be just a um, cosmetic type of deal. I mean, there's going to be no substantive changes. It's going to be just like the USMCA, right? The only difference or the main difference between the USMCA and NAFTA is the name. I mean, that's what changed. You know, you have Trump talking about how great this new deal is, right? But I mean, there's, there's no substantive difference between the old deal and the new deal. And I think something similar is going to happen with China. I mean, we're going to get a deal and Trump is going to claim it's a huge victory. But I'm sure the Chinese are going to claim it's a victory over there, too. I mean, everybody is going to use it, uh, you know, as a PR stunt in their own country. But Trump is going to be congratulating himself on what a fantastic job he and his team did and how we've got the greatest deal ever with China. But it's going to change nothing.
So A, if you thought the New Deal was somehow going to be a boon for the U.S. economy, it's not going to mean anything. We're going to be right back to where we were before the trade war. We wouldn't have gained anything. Uh, but we will at least remove the uncertainty because once Trump says I've won, I you know I beat China down, I fulfilled my campaign pledge. You know China's not going to take advantage of us anymore. We're not going to keep on losing. Well, he's going to put that issue behind him and he's going to move forward to something else. So we're not going to go back to trade again. So nothing real would have been accomplished. The president, as always, is going to pretend that something great happened when nothing happened. But we're going to get a deal. But it's not going to help the market because the market really isn't falling because of the trade war and the tariffs. Sure, those are negative things, but the market would have gone down anyway. And so the fact that we basically, you know, heal a self-inflicted wound is not ultimately going to be a positive for the market. And again, buy the rumor, sell the fact. Once no, people no longer can look forward to the news, they're just going to sell the news. The only other uh, potential positive that is out there is the end to the government shutdown, right? A resolution of that problem. Now, of course, the government being shut down is just a manufactured problem, and it's not really a problem. I mean, the problem isn't that the government shuts down. The problem is that it's still open. It's, you know, if we really shut down the government, that would be a positive for the markets, but it's never really shut down. In fact, it costs us more money to shut it down than to keep it running normally. So we lose from the shutdown. And I guess the longer it remains shut down, the more it costs us to keep it shut down. Uh, you know, one of the benefits, though, of the shutdown to the president is some of the bad economic news that would be coming out, like the factory orders we didn't get this week or the trade data that should have come out. I'm sure we would have got some weak economic news and the Commerce Department, you know, is not being funded or some people so they can't release the data. So I guess that's maybe helping the markets or the president because some of the bad news is being kept under wraps. But once we finally get the uh, the government shutdown uh, behind us, right? We Whatever it's going to be, right? I mean, it's, they're not going to keep the government shut down until the election. I mean, somebody is going to give. There's going to be some type of compromise at some point. Uh, of course, Trump will claim victory. The Democrats will claim victory. But the markets potentially could rally on that. But I think that that's out there. A lot of people, since they know that this government shutdown is going to come to an end because it's all political theater, People are looking to buy stocks in advance of that so they can own them for the rally when the shutdown is over. And again, it's more of a buy the rumor, sell the fact. Although, again, today there was supposedly a meeting late in the day, you know, maybe 15 to a half an hour, minutes to a half hour before the close. Uh, the president tweeted out that, you know, he was wasting his time talking with Pelosi and Schumer, uh, that they don't want the wall, so the government's going to stay shut down. And it's, you know, a Mexican standoff. Uh, when it comes to um, these negotiations to reopen the government. In fact, the president gave a 10-minute uh, uh, televised speech last night, basically appealing to the country about why it's so important that we build this wall. Because after all, the whole shutdown is based on the wall. Now, first of all, Trump said he could just declare a national emergency as president and build the wall. And apparently most people agree that he can do that. I, I personally, I don't think the president has the authority to manufacture an emergency where one doesn't exist uh, because I don't see any substantive change uh, unless you want to say there's been an emergency for decades and nobody has bothered to declare it as such. 
Uh, but assuming that he does what he wants, because presidents get away with a lot these days, so did Congress. I mean, uh, everybody is able to usurp power. The Supreme Court never seems to do anything about it. But if Trump can just, you know, uh, use an executive order to fund the wall, then why not just do that and just uh, open up the government? So it doesn't make any sense that he would say, I don't need congressional approval to do it, but I'm going to shut down the government anyway until I get it, unless somehow he thinks that this is a political win for him. But I think if the polls really start to show that it's not, then obviously he's going to soften his stance. But I watched the president's you know, 10, 12 minute presentation, and he really was trying to scare the American public about the the criminals that are coming over the wall and the crimes that are that are being committed. And, you know, of course, a lot of it has to do with drugs and drug related crimes and drug trafficking. And if the president really wanted to do something about that, how about just legalizing more drugs, taking uh, the, the criminal profit out of drugs, allowing free market forces and private uh, companies who are responsible uh, and who are subject to uh, the courts and contracts and litigation and all that. I mean, we could take the criminal profit out of drugs and the crimes and the violence would go with it. Uh, That would be much better than just thinking we're going to solve the drug problem by building a wall. I mean, I've mentioned many, many times that the, the place where you have the biggest problem with drugs in America are inside prisons, right? So there's probably more drug use in prisons than outside prisons. And there, you know, you've got walls, you've got barbed wire, you've got guns, right? If they can't keep drugs out of a prison, how are they going to keep drugs out of the United States? A wall's not going to do it, whether it's made out of concrete, whether it's made out of uh, uh, steel. Uh, So just going after the failed war on drugs would be a much better use of the president's time. uh, But instead, he wants to make a big deal about uh, about the wall. But one of the other things that the president said was that the wall would be a huge economic benefit to the United States. Again, he says that the wall is going to be paid for by Mexico, which it's not. When he was running for president, he was basically going to make Mexico actually write a check for the wall, right? Pay for the wall. Now he claims that they're going to pay indirectly through the new trade deal that he negotiated. But of course, That's not true because there's no extra revenue that's going to the U.S. government as a result of that trade deal. There's no extra economic activity that the U.S. government is going to tax or that the U.S. economy is going to benefit from as a result of the new uh, NAFTA deal. So that's a bunch of nonsense. But one of the things that the president said was that if we can stop these illegals from coming into the country with a wall... Uh, it's going to lead to more jobs and higher wages because he basically said that it is illegal immigrants that are killing jobs and holding down wages. And I guess he means by killing jobs, they're taking jobs away from uh, a job that would otherwise go to a legal citizen. But some illegal came in here and took that job away and they did it for lower pay. So because you have these workers going, coming in, we have lower wages. And he says, everybody is hurt by lower wages. And this is all a bunch of nonsense. I mean, the president is completely wrong on this when he comes to economics. First of all, I do believe that having immigrants coming in, legal or otherwise, is re-increasing the pool of labor. And that's a good thing, because labor is a resource. However labor comes to the United States, the more laborers we have, the more of that resource we possess, right? Capital is a resource, land is a resource, and labor is a resource. So if we have more people who can labor, 
right? That is another resource that the economy has. So having more of a resource is not a negative for the economy. It is a positive. And if we have more labor resources due to the laws of supply and demand, the cost of employing that labor is going to go down. So yes, I do believe the president is right that we do have an aggregate, some lower wages as a result of illegal immigrants, but that is not a negative for the U.S. economy. It is a positive. So to the extent that the wall, if it actually works and it keeps people from coming into the country that would have added to our labor resources uh, and labor prices go up as a result, it is a negative for the economy. Now, a lot of people think, no, wait, wait a minute. I mean, aren't low wages bad because don't we want to earn high wages? Wages are a price, right? They are the price of labor, just like any other price. And everybody wants to pay a low price. Everybody benefits from a low price. Even if you yourself have a job and you work and are paid wages for your labor, you still buy labor from everybody else. I mean, whenever you buy a product, embedded in the cost of that product is the labor that was required to produce it. And so if labor costs go down and production costs go down, then prices can go down. And so lower wages could mean lower prices and the net effect could be a benefit. Look, it, even if you don't directly employ people, and of course, a lot of people do directly employ people, even if they don't have a business, right? Maybe you have a housekeeper, maybe you have a nanny or a babysitter, right? You pay them, right? Don't you want to be able to hire a babysitter for less money, right? Isn't it a good thing? You know, if you have to pay too much, maybe you can't even afford to go out. You have to stay home. I mean, people shop around. Probably if you're looking for a babysitter, you don't go with the most expensive one, right? You might try to find somebody that will do it for less money and then benefit from low wages as an employer. Uh, but a lot of people, you know, you don't pay the cost directly. Let's say your car has a mechanical problem. You got to take it to a shop. You got to get something fixed. I mean, you pay for parts and you pay for labor, right? The labor is there. They actually break it out. Here's how much parts are. Here's how much labor is. And if you're going to shop around, most people, when they take their car in, you know, they don't just take one estimate. They might go to two or three different uh, repair shops and, and, you know, see what kind of prices they get and go with the lowest one. Generally, it's the labor that's going to vary more than the parts because the parts are generally standard. So, you know, you're going, you're shopping around, you're looking for the one that has the lowest labor rate, not the highest labor rate, right? So you take your car into a, into a mechanic shop, you benefit by lower wages. So if the supply of mechanics goes up, if more people are here, you know, working as mechanics, then that's better for anybody who has a car who might need to have that car repaired. Right now, where are these illegals going mostly? Right, most of them they 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 do agriculture jobs. They work on the farms, and a lot of these jobs, I mean, legal Americans won't even take them. Why should they? They they get welfare, they get unemployment, they get food stamps, they get all kinds of programs. I mean, in general, if it wasn't for illegal labor, a lot of these jobs wouldn't go to Americans because they could Americans couldn't afford to buy the food if they had to pay wages high enough. To, to have have Americans in those fields. So what would happen is that we would just import more food. We would buy more food from South America rather than growing it ourselves. And we'd actually probably lose agricultural jobs uh, that are much higher paying, that are basically built on top of those farm labor, right? Without the, uh, the low-cost workers coming in illegally, 
a lot of you know higher paid jobs would go away because a lot of the food would be grown outside the United States and then and then brought into the United States. Uh, and so to say that Americans would, would be doing these jobs at higher wages is nonsense. In fact, a lot of the jobs that are being performed by illegals, right, are if we didn't have the illegals, we'd either um, automate the function and companies would, would use machines or it would just be outsourced and the labor would take place outside the United States and the wages would be, pay, be paid outside the United States. And so having illegals do the work in the United States is still better from the U.S. economy than having the work performed outside the United States and the wages being paid uh, out. Because at least if the guy is in America and he's earning his money here, now he goes and he spends his money. He's spending it locally as opposed to sending the money uh, to another country where it gets spent outside the United States. But one of the uh, ways that illegals really help the economy that people overlook especially out in a place like California, where you have a lot of uh, illegals coming, is for child care and, 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 and house care, right? You have a lot of illegals who work as domestic workers and they help ordinary families, middle-class families make ends meet, right? And they benefit from the lower-cost labor. Now, if they had to pay, uh, you know, the wages to legal Americans, well, I mean, they couldn't afford it. I mean, I'll give you a, an easy example. Think about a two-income uh, couple in California. Let's say the husband makes $150,000 a year and the wife, you know, could get a job and make 100000 a year. So they can make $250,000 a year if they both work. And, you know, that may sound like a lot of money to some people, but if you have kids and you're living in California, $250,000 after taxes is not a lot of money. But here is the problem. Let's say they got a couple of kids, right? And they're young kids. Well, if the woman, right, is going to go into the workforce, what's what she do with the kids, right? Somebody has to watch those kids if they're young. And of course, you know, if she's working hard, you know, at an office, making a hundred grand a year, uh, she may not feel like doing all the housework. So we got to hire somebody to help around the house. Well, here's the problem. The marginal tax rate, when you have a double income family, the income of the second worker is taxed the entirety at the marginal rate, right? So if you, you normally when you get your first job, some of the money you earn is, is taxed at the lower bracket. And as you earn more money, uh, the higher amount is taxed at a higher bracket. But your, your average tax is a lot lower than the marginal tax. But when you take a second income and add it onto the first income, then all that money is now at the higher rate. So that diminishes the incentive for the second person to go into the workforce because they face a much higher tax rate, average tax rate even, than the initial spouse who's already working. Now, if you take a look at the situation in California where the guy is making 150000 and the and the wife is making a they they're going to be in the federal tax bracket for a married filing jointly of 24%, right? So it's not even the top bracket. But the income in California is going to be taxed at 9.3%. I mean, you're already up to 9.3. I mean, California goes up to 13.3 if your income is over a million. But once you're over 105,000, it's already 9.3. I mean, that's huge. And remember, you can no longer deduct that against your federal tax. Also, you make $100,000 a year, you're paying FICA on the entire amount. 
right? So that's 7.65%. Now it's really over 15% because the employee pays the employer's half indirectly. And of course, if the wife was going to be self-employed, she would pay the whole thing. But let's just, you know, assume she can get a job at W-2 worker at 100 grand. She's still going to have 7.65% coming out uh, for FICA. So when you add the 7.65% FICA, the 24% federal and the 9.3% California, she's in a 41% tax bracket. So if she earns a hundred grand, she's only going to have 59,000 left after taxes, right? Uh, because she had a job. Now, let's say she's got to hire a, a legal uh, full-time uh, nanny, housekeeper, and let's say it costs 50 grand in California to hire somebody because that's what it costs. I mean, I, I mean, I've hired them legally uh, in Connecticut, and that's what it costs. Cost, you know, it's about what it costs. So let's say she had a, you had to pay fifty thousand. Well, you, you're only earning fifty nine thousand. You can't deduct from your taxes the cost of your nanny housekeeper, right? That's just an expense. So you get fifty nine thousand coming in. You got fifty thousand going out. It's not even worth it, especially when you think of the fact that if she gets a job, she's got to commute. That's going to cost gas, wear and tear on the car. Uh, she's probably going to eat out more often. She's going to eat in restaurants for lunch. You add up all those extra costs. I'm sure it's at least nine grand a year, so you don't make anything. But now, let's say there's an illegal that'll do the job for twenty twenty-five thousand a year. Right? Maybe live in a spare room. Maybe even less. Maybe a thousand a month. Maybe you get an illegal even for twelve, fifteen thousand. You pay room and board. Right. Well, all of a sudden, OK, well, you know, now maybe you can keep 34, 40, 50,000, you know, at, you know, after tax. Right. Because you got 59. If you're only paying uh, the housekeeper 20, 25, you know, you have 34, 45, you know, left over out of your hundred. OK, that makes sense. The wife can afford to work thanks to the illegal person she's able to hire to help watch the kids and take care of the house. But now you take away that illegal uh, domestic worker, and now that woman may decide, you know what, I can't afford to work. I'm better just taking care of my kids myself, doing all the housework myself, and not having a job. So now that job goes away, and the government loses all that tax revenue. Yes, they're not getting any tax revenue from the illegal, but because the illegal is making it possible for the wife to work, they're collecting all that tax revenue from the wife which is more because she's earning a hundred grand. But now if the illegal is not there and now the wife stops working, the government loses all the tax revenue on the much bigger salary. So I think net overall, the fact that we have illegal immigrants coming into the United States and helping to keep wages down so that people can afford them, this is a net benefit to the U.S. economy. It is not a net drag on the economy. And of course, when these workers are paid, they go out and spend the money in the local economy as well. So businesses get the benefit of that, those economic transactions and they pay sales taxes. You know, the government collects that. So there's a lot of taxed economic activity that goes on even among illegals uh, if they're not paying taxes. Of course, a lot of illegals do end up paying taxes. You know, they don't they don't get any refunds if they don't file returns. But some of them have taxes withheld uh, from from their pay. The the only real problem that you get from illegals is a yes crime right to the extent that illegals commit crime that is a problem but it's a problem when everybody commits crime but i would suggest that probably 
the single biggest reason that illegals commit crime is the same reason that legals commit crime, and that has to do with drugs. Whether it's people that are actively engaged in drug commerce, or they're just drug users, and they're committing crimes because they need the money to buy drugs. All of that would be solved, as I said earlier in the podcast, by decriminalization, legalization, which would enable the cost of these drugs to come down to the point where people would not have to commit crimes to be able to afford them. And of course, if we could have drugs uh, manufactured legally and sold legally, they wouldn't be cut with all the impurities that they are now. So the drugs themselves would be a lot healthier to consume. Not that they would be healthy, but they just wouldn't be as unhealthy. A lot of the problems that drug addicts have is from how impure the drugs that they're taking are. And a lot of the damage is done by those impurities that wouldn't be there if there was a legal market. Uh, and so, you know, the, the drug addicts would be in better overall health. And of course, they might even be in better position to kick, get rid of drugs. But the fact that it wouldn't be a criminal problem anymore, it would just be a health problem, would be a major step in the right direction. And at least when somebody, you know, is hurting themselves by taking drugs, to the extent that they're not robbing from other people to afford the habit, at least they're not imposing those costs on third parties, right? You know, because if I get robbed by somebody who needs money to buy illegal drugs, well, I'm being affected. I'm being hurt. If drugs are less expensive and and the addicts don't have to rob me, well, then at least I'm not suffering. The addict is suffering alone, which is where the way it should be. People should suffer the consequences of their own bad decisions. But what I don't like is when people make other people suffer those consequences. And that's what happens as a result of the illegal or the, the war on drugs and the fact that drugs are illegal. That means that drugs are very expensive because the people who sell them obviously uh, have to risk going to jail. And there's all sorts of uh, uh, added costs that make buying something that's illegal a lot more expensive than, than buying something that's legal. But the other big problem that we get from illegal immigration is welfare. Clearly, that is a problem. If people are coming into this country and going on welfare and food stamps, right? If somebody is coming over the border pregnant, having a baby, and then immediately signing up for all kind of welfare programs because they're an unwed mother and now they got a young baby that they got to take care of. Yes, that is a huge problem. That has to stop. But you don't need a wall to stop that. Turn off the welfare magnet. Look, first of all, I don't like I don't like legal citizens getting welfare, but at least say, look, if you come into the United States, you got to be here for 10 years before you could qualify for welfare or something like that. Some type of waiting period so that you just can't come here and immediately go on welfare. I mean, if you come here and you're a citizen or you get a green card and then you fall on hard times in the future and you want to say, okay, you need the safety net. You know, I mean, I still like to get rid of welfare completely. But if you still think we need some kind of government welfare system, then at least have a system that says you can't get welfare until you're here for 10 years or five years or something like that, because then nobody is going to come here immediately in search of welfare, right? That's going to turn that off immediately if you had that kind of a waiting period. I mean, I want people to come to America who want to work. That is not a problem, right? Trump was wrong on that. 
People coming here and working is a net positive that benefits the U.S. economy because we get the benefit of their labor. We get the benefit of their work. And a lot of times these illegals come in here with skills. I mean, they have skills in trades, you know, whether it's carpentry or, uh, you know, they're tailors or they're mechanics or whatever they can do with their hands, whatever skills they're bringing with them. That's a net positive to have skilled workers coming into the United States and helping out, whether they're here legally or not. They're still going to, you know, add to the to the labor resources of the country. The problem is when they add to the welfare drain on the economy. We don't need more people on welfare. We got enough people on welfare as it is. So the illegal coming for welfare, go after that. Try to stop that by having that cooling off period, that waiting period. So you can't get any of these programs, not just welfare. You can't qualify for food stamps or you know housing vouchers or any of this stuff you got to be here and you got to prove that you've been here for that amount of time before you can qualify for any of these benefits and that would that would stop it in a nickel right i mean nobody is going to come here anymore unless they want to work and if they're doing that then it's a positive thing it's not a negative but trump is trying to make it out like it's all these bad things that are going to happen as a result of these these illegal immigrants and that's not the case, but to the extent that some bad things happen, there's a better way of solving it. And I wish Trump would use some of his political, you know, uh, ammunition, right, uh, to to uh, to make that happen. I mean, he wasted two years where he had a Republican House and a Republican Senate where they actually could have had some substantive welfare reform like I just talked about. And now, of course, it's never going to happen because the Democrats don't want fewer people on welfare. They want more people on welfare. The Democrats love it when an illegal comes into America and immediately goes on welfare because that's their voting block. They want them. In fact, the main reason or one of the main reason that the Democrats want the illegals here is because they want them to vote. And obviously they know that legally they can't vote, but clearly they're going to find a way to vote anyway. And one of the reasons that the Democrats want so many illegals coming in here and going on welfare and then becoming citizens is because they want the votes, particularly in states like Texas, right, and Florida, which have been swing states or, you know, red states. They want to flip those states blue. So they know if we bring a bunch of welfare recipients into some of the swing states that they're going to be uh, democratic states forever. Because if you could bring people in on welfare from day one, get them hooked on that drug, and then you know they're going to vote for you as long as you promise more drugs. And they're not going to vote for a Republican because the Democrat could say, oh, well, you know, the, the Republicans want to take your drug away, right? They want to take away your welfare, right? And so that, that's the other real motivation from the left they want to bring all these people in. And the irony of it is because a lot of these poor people who are leaving their countries are leaving countries because they have too much government and all that government is destroying opportunity and economic growth. So then they come over here and they vote for the same type of politicians that destroy the opportunity in their own country. And that's the reason that they've come here. But I don't believe that would happen uh, for people coming across the border in search of employment opportunities. I think the people that come here and work that don't go on welfare are not going to be so inclined to vote for these liberals. In fact, especially if we have that waiting period that I said where you come into America, even if you come in legal, right? You come to this country and you say, look, I want to contribute. I'm going to work. I'm going to pay taxes, but I'm not going to draw on welfare and food stamps. That's the deal. 
We'll let you in as long as you agree that for the first five years, or the first 10 years, if you fall on hard times, you're on your own. And if you don't like it, just go back to the country you came from, right? Don't come to America if you're looking for a handout because we're not giving it to you. But if you're looking for the opportunity to, to you know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, then come on in, right? If you're going to work and you're going to contribute, and after you've been here a long enough period of time and you've contributed, okay, then you can use the social safety nets. But you can't use them right off the bat. And if your intention is to use them, then we don't even want you here. Right. And if that was the case and we only allowed people to come here who are willing to work, then a lot of those people would probably vote Republican. Right. Because they don't want to pay taxes. They want they want lower taxes. They want less government. But the type of immigrants that uh, the Democrats want are the type that are going to be on welfare. And so that is really the battle issue. And that's what the president should be focusing on, not just about building a wall and not about this nonsense to try to scapegoat immigrants and say immigrants are why the jobs are disappearing. Immigrants are why wages are low. That's not true. In fact, if we had less government, sound money and more immigrants, more, you know, more people coming in to do these jobs, we'd have better jobs. We'd have higher wages. You know, we'd have a stronger economy, right? We absorb. Think about all the uh, the immigrants that were flooding into the U.S. economy uh, in 1890, 1900, 1910. I mean, my parents, my grandparents, rather, all of them came as immigrants. They all came through Ellis Island from Europe. I mean, they were coming by the millions, right? And yes, of course, they were driving wages down. I mean, it was much more so than today, right? This influx of labor that was pouring in the United States. There was no welfare. There was no food stamps. There were no so there was no taxes either. So people showed up and they could work, but nobody was coming for welfare because it didn't exist. Even if you were a legal American, you couldn't get any welfare. All that stuff was a creation of the New Deal in the 1930s. Relief. That's when all this stuff happened. But before the 30s, it was every man for himself. And we had all these people coming and it wasn't a problem at all. America boomed. We benefited from an influx of workers to keep labor costs down. And of course, they were bringing all their skills with them. So the same thing would happen again if we had limited government. We didn't have the welfare state. We had more people coming in you know, to do the work. Uh, then the economy would be stronger and a lot of the lower skilled jobs would support higher paying jobs for the Americans that are already here. Everybody would be a winner. But right now, the president should use the bully pulpit, use the popularity he has to really talk about what the problems are that are being created by illegal immigrants. And the problems have to do with government and government welfare and, and get to the to root cause of the problem and you know focus on that. Uh, rather than making the argument just about keeping people out, make the arguments about keeping people off of welfare. And, and that would be something that I think a lot more people could support, certainly in the Republican Party. Uh, the Democrats, of course, a lot of them are not going to support that. But that's a better line in the sand to draw. And you know, while he's at it, instead of talking about shutting down the government because they won't spend an extra $5 billion, if we're going to have this protracted so-called government shutdown, let's do it for something real. Why doesn't Trump say, I'm going to keep the government shut down until we agree on massive cuts in government spending, until we balance the budget? I'm going to keep the government shut down until we reform entitlements, right? Let's do something real. Why waste all of this you know, ammunition on, on nothing, right? At least let's 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 make the the shutdown worth it. Let's really get some gains, 
instead of making this whole thing about nothing, about, you know, $5 billion over a wall, you know, uh, because once this again precedent is set, the Republicans are not going to be able to do a shutdown again, right? When the Democrats have control, the socialists have control in 2021 to the extent that we still have some Republicans left. And there will always be a few Republicans. They're just not going to be in control. But they may have a, you know, enough to, you know, to, uh, you know, filibuster something in the Senate. Uh, they may be able to do something, but they're not even going to have any ground, any moral ground or, or to stand on to try to limit any kind of increase in government spending or shut down the government for legitimate reason when the last time they had power, right, they were greenlighting every spending program there was. They were, you know, basically signing off on a blank check of bigger deficits. We're going to cut taxes. We're going to increase military spending. We don't give a damn about the budget deficits. How are they all of a sudden going to claim that, oh, now we care about the deficits when they're, they belong to a Republican, Democratic president, but we, we didn't care at all about the deficits uh, when they belong to a Republican president.